Saturdays at 1900 UTC on The Voice of America. This is VOA News. I'm Richard Green. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to decide whether former President Donald Trump can be prosecuted on charges he interfered with the 2020 election. The court will hear arguments in April, with a decision likely no later than the end of June. The justice's order Wednesday maintains a hold on preparations for a trial focused on Trump's efforts to overturn his election laws. The timetable is much faster than usual, but assuming the justices deny Trump's immunity bid, it is not clear whether a trial can be scheduled and concluded prior to the November election. Trump's lawyers have sought to put off a trial until after the election. The funeral of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died earlier this month, will take place on Friday. That's according to his spokesperson. AP correspondent Karen Chamas reports. The service will take place at a church in Moscow's southeast district after several locations declined to host the service. The burial is to be at a nearby cemetery. His spokesperson, Kira Yarmish, said many venues refused to take the booking when they heard the name Navalny, with one place disclosing that funeral venues were forbidden to take the service on. Navalny died in mid-February in one of Russia's harshest penal facilities. Many Western leaders have already said they hold Russian President Vladimir Putin responsible for his death. I'm Karen Chamas. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met on Wednesday with Serbia's president, as well as the leaders of Bosnia and Moldova in Albania. Zelensky arrived overnight to join the summit of 11 countries from southeastern Europe, along with officials from the European Union and other international organizations. It was the latest stop in an international tour that saw him in Saudi Arabia on Tuesday to push for a peace plan and the return of prisoners of war from Russia. VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine podcast goes beyond the headlines to look at the most recent developments from the front lines of the Russia-Ukraine war, as well as human stories from those affected. This is VOA News. Hamas on Wednesday called for Palestinians to march to Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque at the start of Ramadan, raising the stakes in ongoing negotiations for a truce in Gaza. The call by Hamas's leader followed comments by U.S. President Joe Biden that an agreement could be reached between Israel and Hamas as soon as next week for a ceasefire during the Muslim fasting month expected to start this year on March 10th. Israel and Hamas, which both have delegations in Qatar this week, are hammering out details of a potential 40-day truce. They have said there is still a big gulf between them, and the Qatari mediator says there is no breakthrough as of yet. The International Rescue Committee says delivering critical humanitarian supplies to Sudan through the Red Sea has become too dangerous due to attacks by U.S.-designated terrorist Houthi rebels based in Yemen. Mohammed Youssef has the story from Nairobi. Getting humanitarian supplies to millions of Sudanese affected by the country's more than 10 months of conflict is getting expensive and risky due to the Yemen's rebel group's violent activities in the Red Sea. The International Rescue Committee says its logistic partner will now bypass the Red Sea route and deliver supplies through Jebel Ali port in the United Arab Emirates on the eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula. It says the new route will raise transportation costs by more than 40%. Mohammed Yusuf, VOA News, Nairobi. Meanwhile, the United States is pushing for the United Nations Security Council to take action to help end a nearly year-long conflict in Sudan between the Sudanese Army and the Paramilitary Rapid Support Force. The UN says that nearly 25 people, half of Sudan's population, need aid, and some 8 million have fled their homes, and hunger is rising. 
A British biotechnology company is betting on a solution to Brazil's surging dengue cases involving the release of genetically modified mosquitoes to reduce the viral infection from spreading. Reuters correspondent Olivia Zelino explains. The modified mosquitoes carry a gene that kills female offspring before they reach maturity. Only female mosquitoes bite and transmit diseases. Susana was among the cities using the solution after declaring a state of emergency earlier this month. The city's mayor said he hopes the next measurement will show a reduction in cases by 20%, so the emergency can be lifted. According to Brazil's health ministry, 195 people died because of the disease, while hundreds of cases remain under investigation. That was Reuters correspondent Olivia Zelino. Follow us 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at voanews.com, as well as on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and X, formerly known as Twitter, and download our VOA News app. I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Mitch McConnell will step down as the Senate Republican leader in November after a record run on the job. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. The Supreme Court sets April arguments over whether Trump can be prosecuted for election interference. The Supreme Court says it will decide whether former President Donald Trump can be criminally prosecuted on charges he interfered with the 2020 election. And Yulia Navalnya steps into the spotlight to fill her husband's role. Putin must answer for what he has done with my country. Today is Thursday, February 29th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell has served in Senate leadership longer than anyone in history. His, his legacy is significant, impacting the courts, oil, and other conservative causes. On Wednesday, he announced this will be his last term as Senate Republican leader. I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. A moment when I'm certain I have helped preserve the ideals I so strongly believe. That day arrived today. To serve Kentucky in the Senate has been the honor of my life. To lead my Republican colleagues has been the highest privilege. But one of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. McConnell says he'll step down as Senate Republican leader in November. Joining us now to talk about this is Matt Klink of Klink Campaigns in Los Angeles. Matt has more than 30 years of experience working on complex, controversial, high-profile issues for public and private sector clients as well as candidates for elected office and ballot measure campaigns. So looking back over his time in the Senate as a 
a senator and then as a Republican leader, it's almost difficult to quantify how much he accomplished in pushing the uh, Republican conservative agenda, don't you think? Mitch McConnell, uh, who announced his uh, stepping down from leadership today, uh, will go down in history as one of the most powerful uh, senators, not just a Democrat, but all of all senators, uh, because of his long tenure in the United States Senate, 20-plus years uh, in a leadership position. Uh, couple that with just the incredible amount of things that he was able to get done, both as minority leader and as majority leader. So he, he was extremely effective, and he knew how to work the politics, whether he was in the majority or in the minority. You know, there was he, he represented a specific political um, cabal, point of view. Uh, you know, one of the most interesting things, I think, about his career is that on his original campaign, uh, Roger Ailes was part of the marketing team that helped him get elected, just to sort of set the frame of, you know, the people that were in his orbit. Uh, Ailes, Coke, um, his impact on the um, judicial system, on getting conservative judges in federal um, uh, courtrooms is astounding. Oh, un unquestionably, yeah. His his biggest legacy by far will be, you know, the the three Trump Supreme Court justices that are on the on the court right now, plus an untold number of federal uh, judges across the entire federal judicial ecosystem. Uh, and equally important, he almost single-handedly frustrated Barack Obama and uh, President Obama's ability to appoint progressive left-leaning judges when he was in when he was in the majority and in the minority when Barack Obama was in office. So again, he is just someone he knew how to pull the level the levers of power at the right time, and he was res he was feared and respected by both sides, and it's a big loss for for democracy today. He, um, you know, was also a big proponent of um, American exceptionalism, uh, the, his backing of, for example, um, our action in Ukraine and those kind of issues. Is this a, a pivot point for the Republican Party in the Senate? In, in many respects, Mitch McConnell uh, retiring highlights the, the changeover that is occurring in the Senate. What you're seeing for Republicans is a more conservative populist agenda, uh, something that clearly Mitch uh, McConnell did not agree with, and that's why he has butted heads with Donald Trump so frequently, but he also has butted head with some of the younger, uh, more aggressive members in the United States Senate. Uh, and look, we're, we're, this is not just a Republican phenomenon. We're seeing it on the Democrat side of the aisle as well. The the, the comedy and the, uh, the, the ability to work across the aisle that has been the hallmark of the Senate is now largely being lost and it's becoming much more tribal like the House of Representatives. So uh, I think that the, the straw that broke the camel's back for uh, Leader McConnell was the Ukrainian funding bill where he couldn't corral enough Republicans to pull that, that measure over the line. 
Uh, and it, I think that that was just a, that was the, another example of the writing on the wall that it was time to step down as leader. Matt Klink of Klink Campaigns. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to decide if Donald Trump's claim that he is immune from criminal charges in his election interference case. They'll hear arguments in April with a decision by the end of June. With the details, here's AP Washington correspondent Sagar Magani. Lower courts have rejected Trump's novel claims that former presidents have absolute immunity for actions falling within their official job duties. An appeals panel here in Washington had ruled a federal judge was right to say that the case against Trump can proceed and he can be prosecuted for actions while in the White House and leading up to the Capitol riot. The high court justices are moving fast, saying they will hear arguments in late April and make a decision no later than the end of June. Sagar Magani, Washington. In another case, a loss for Trump. In New York on Wednesday, an appeals judge ruled against him in a bid to pause a $454.2 million civil fraud judgment against him for overstating his net worth and real estate values to dupe lenders meaning he must soon find the cash or post a bond to prevent New York authorities from seizing his property while he appeals. Here's Associated Press correspondent Haya Panjwani with that story. A New York appellate court has rejected former President Donald Trump's proposal to stop the collection of a civil fraud penalty. His lawyers said they weren't able to obtain loans from New York banks because of a ruling in mid-February banning Trump, his company, and his co-defendants from doing so. But the appellate court judge paused that ban, which could help Trump secure the necessary bond. Former federal prosecutor David Weinstein says it's a 50-50 victory. What happened today was a partial victory for both sides, both the defendants in this case as well as the attorney general. Weinstein said the next thing he expects Trump to do is request a loan from a New York bank. But he also believes that the state attorney general will continue to block any appeals or stays that could come from Trump and his lawyers. I'm Haya Panjwani. Following these other stories from around the world, Ghana's parliament passed legislation that intensified a crackdown on the rights of LGBTQ people and those promoting lesbian, gay, or other non-conventional sex or gender identities. Gay sex is already punishable by up to three years in prison in Ghana. The bill now also imposes a prison sentence of up to five years for the willful promotion, sponsorship, or support of LGBTQ plus activities. Trade unions in Guinea on Wednesday said they are suspending a general strike that has paralyzed the military-run country for three days after a prominent media activist was released. The Secretary General of the Union of Press Professionals of Guinea was detained last month for calling a demonstration against censorship. His release on Wednesday was one of the strikers' main demands in a country where protests are rare under junta leader Mamadi Dumboya. Cuba's government said it plans to reschedule an unpopular five-fold increase in retail gasoline prices on March 1st, a month later than initially planned, after Cuban officials said its systems had suffered a cyber attack. 
A fast-moving wildfire burning through the U.S. state of Texas's panhandle has grown into the second-largest blaze in state history. Fire is forcing evacuations and triggering power outages as firefighters struggle to contain the widening flames. It came up very fast. I saw the neighbor's house starting to burn, and I called 911, and the fire trucks got here, but it was... It just started really fast. Flames were going everywhere. And uh, by the time we got back, well, there was nothing left. The sprawling blaze is part of a cluster of fires that burned out of control and threatened rural towns where local officials spent the night shutting down roads, urging residents to leave their homes. The largest of the fires grew to nearly 1,280 kilometers. Authorities said it jumped into parts of neighboring Oklahoma and remained completely uncontained as dawn broke on Wednesday. U.S. President Joe Biden's administration is considering airdropping aid into Gaza as land deliveries become increasingly difficult. This is according to the news website Axios and also Reuters now reporting as well, citing four U.S. officials. An Israeli government spokesperson told a news briefing on Wednesday that the country puts no limits on the amount of humanitarian aid sent into Gaza. We say again, there is no limits to the amount of humanitarian aid for the civilians in Gaza. After nearly five months of war against Hamas, we know that once humanitarian aid does get in, the terror organization Hamas takes over. Looting is also a problem. But we are working with the Biden administration to find ways to improve the humanitarian assistance delivery. Spokesperson for the Israeli Prime Minister's office, Tal Heinrich. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. told the Australian Parliament on Thursday he would not allow any foreign power to take one square inch of the country's territory and that Manila was firm in defending its sovereignty. We must oppose actions that clearly denigrate the rule of law. As in 1942, the Philippines now finds itself on the front line against actions that undermine regional peace, erode regional stability, and threaten regional success. Then as now, we remain firm in defending our sovereignty, our sovereign rights, our jurisdiction. I shall never tire of repeating the declaration that I made from the first day that I took office. I will not allow any attempt by any foreign power to take even one square inch of our sovereign territory. Australia and the Philippines began their first joint sea and air patrols in the South China Sea in November, aimed at countering an increasingly assertive China. The protection of the South China Sea as a vital, a critical global artery is crucial to the preservation of regional peace and, I dare say, of global peace. We have an abiding interest in keeping our seas free and open and in ensuring unimpeded passage and freedom of navigation. 
In the Ukraine war, 18 U.S.-produced self-propelled howitzers are part of the latest security assistance package bound for Ukraine, worth about $800 million. The howitzers are part of a $1.2 billion defense agreement between Ukraine and Germany. Anna Kostashenko takes us to one of the guns already in service. Fire! This officer from the 24th Separate Mechanized Brigade who goes by the code sign Kent is a professional soldier from the city of Dnipro. He commands a crew that operates Paladin, a 155mm howitzers. For safety reasons, VOA does not use his name. Prepare! Fire! The Paladin version of the U.S. Army's self-propelled howitzers was introduced into the U.S. Army in 1992. According to Ukraine's Ministry of Defense, the country received the first artillery pieces in May 2022. The 24th Separate Mechanized Brigade has been using them since the fall of 2023, says Kent. If you compare these systems to the Soviet ones, there is a significant difference. For example, the firing range for a Soviet howitzer is about 17 kilometers. For Paladin, it is at least 28. Or if we use the Excalibur shell, it is up to 40 kilometers. Paladin howitzers are used to eliminate the enemy's heavy equipment that poses the most danger to Ukrainian infantrymen, like tanks. Thirty-five-year-old Lviv resident Bogdan worked in Estonia as a construction worker. He returned from Estonia to defend his native country when Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. He says he mastered the digital system of the Paladin Howitzer in just a week, and that the system increases the effectiveness of each shot. The armor here is much stronger than in Soviet howitzer Akatsia, which I worked with at the beginning of the invasion. It is also easier to use because we raise the barrel with a joystick. 36-year-old Ukrainian Roman also returned from abroad. When Russia invaded Ukraine, he was working in Poland, but was back home to fight and defend his country and the future of his two children. I love my country, and I have children, and I don't want to pass this war on to them. They have suffered enough already. Managing a Paladin howitzer is a five-person job. After they receive the necessary coordinates, they take a direct shot. Under terms of the agreement between Germany and Ukraine, 18 more self-propelled howitzers will be delivered in 2026 and 2027. Although no one here hopes the war will still be going on then. Anna Kostichenko for viewing News, Donetsk region, Ukraine. And finally... My husband will never see what the beautiful Russia of the future will look like. But we must see it. When the world learned that Alexei Navalny had died in a Russian prison, his widow, Yulia Navalny, said she would carry on. On Wednesday, 
she took her husband's fight for a free Russia to the European Union. She told the ministers that when you deal with Russian President Vladimir Putin, you're not dealing with a politician, but a, quote, bloody mobster. Here's Reuters correspondent Ilan Rubens. Yulia Navalny, wife of late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, is emerging as a new political force after she vowed to carry on her husband's fight for a free Russia. The most vocal critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin died on February 16th in an Arctic penal colony. Three days ago, Vladimir Putin killed my husband, Alexei Navalny. Navalny has accused Putin of having her husband killed. The Kremlin has angrily rejected that allegation. Here's what we know about Navalny and what her future plans may be. An economist by background, Yulia met Alexei on a holiday in Turkey in 1998. They were both once members of the liberal Russian Yablaka party. For years, she sought to avoid the spotlight, but often appeared beside her husband at rallies, on the campaign trail and in the courtroom during his many trials. She herself has been arrested multiple times at protests related to her husband's activist work. When Navalny was poisoned with a nerve agent in 2020, it was Yulia who pushed for her husband's evacuation from Russia to a German hospital, where he underwent treatment. Following her husband's death, Navalny has promised to continue his work, urging Russians to share her rage against Putin. By killing Alexei, Putin killed half of me, half of my heart and half of my soul. But I still have the other half, and it tells me that I have no right to give up. She has met Western politicians, including U.S. President Joe Biden. Speaking to the European Parliament in Strasbourg, she urged EU politicians to investigate financial flows in the West, linked to Putin and his allies. If you really want to defeat Putin, you have to become, become an innovator. You, are, you have to stop being boring. Navalny has not yet set out her vision for Russia's opposition, whose leading members are in prison or abroad. Yulia Navalny is our new hope. She has taken upon herself all of Alexei Navalny's political capital. Currently living outside Russia, she would risk arrest if she returned, making the task ahead for Navalny's widow even more daunting. Reuters correspondent, Ilan Rubens. This has been International Edition of The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thank you so much for being with us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, you can follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. February 15th marked 13 years since the people of Libya rose up and opposed the regime of Muammar Gaddafi. But over the ensuing years, Libyans saw little peace. Terrorists attempted to gain a foothold there while political disunity opened the doors to warlords who split the country, fighting over territory and oil fields.
Caught in the middle of the violence was a civilian population. And in the meantime, heavily armed militarized groups that evolved from militias formed after the 2011 revolution operate across the country, largely unchecked. The United States is alarmed by the activities of armed groups in Libya, which operate with impunity and have persistent influence over Libyan security and politics, said Robert Wood, alternate U.S. representative for special political affairs at the United Nations. We remain concerned by the number of violations of human rights and international humanitarian law by these groups, which include death, injury, or displacement of hundreds of civilians, as well as allegations of unlawful detentions to suppress perceived civil dissent and attacks against civil society. We urge the panel to continue investigating these acts and identify individuals for possible sanctions. Libya's economy is heavily dependent on its oil exports. Indeed, oil accounts for over 90% of the country's fiscal revenue. Yet the funds are not distributed fairly over Libya's three historical regions, Tripolitania, Cyrenaica, and Fezzan. We continue to urge Libya's leaders to commit to implementing a transparent, accountable, equitable system for the management and distribution of oil revenues, said Ambassador Wood. We remain concerned by non-transparent use of Libya's oil revenues for political and personal gain, which continues to prop up the current system. This includes the illicit export of petroleum products, which the panel cited has increased in frequency from the east. Finally, it is clear that there is no pathway to a future of peace in Libya without elections. We urge Libyan political leaders to name their representatives to attend UN-facilitated preparatory talks aimed at addressing the core issues still standing in the way of elections, said Ambassador Wood. Those who continue to delay the process will hold a heavy share of the blame if yet more time passes without the election of a legitimate unified government. The Libyan people deserve change, progress, and hope. They deserve to choose their own leaders. That was an editorial.